What do you actually need to start running a tabletop role-playing game? What tools, either physical or conceptual, are useful to any referee, no matter what RPG or what type of game they are running? If you say the real life ends up your days And you don't have time to play Well, midlife is the best time to start a new role-playing phase And you need a rescue Jay's coming at you with a rescue A role-play rescue Jay's gonna help my friend Let's sit down the game My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello, rescuers! I hope you're well, and welcome to the show. This week, I've been thinking an awful lot about what it means to be a referee, or game master, dungeon master, storyteller, whatever you call it. I've been thinking an awful lot about what it means to be a referee running your own game. Today, with our theme of getting back to the table firmly in mind, I sat down to jot out a list of the key referee tools that I would seek to bring to the table for almost any game I run. I'm not necessarily good at remembering to assemble these items, but I do strongly feel like they help me to run a positive session for my friends, both face-to-face and online. I thought it might be interesting to share those notes with you and invite anyone with additional things they use to call in to let me know. On the topic of call-ins, by the way, I've had a rather amusing barrage of messages from last week's guest, Andy Goodman, and also from a new guy. So, I'd like to share those call-ins and then make a quick reply before we dive off into the episode proper. This is Season 5, Episode 19, The Referee's Basic Toolkit. <laughs> I've only listened to the first two minutes of your Friday episode and I had to call in. Oh, you are putting the cat amongst the pigeons, my friend. The cat amongst the pigeons. Especially for me, someone like me. It's almost like you've kind of deliberately aimed this episode at me. I know you haven't, but, you know, everyone's a little bit solipsistic every now and again but um anyway look i, I i'm gonna have to now listen to the rest of the episode and maybe i'll leave a, a message at the end <laughs> hi che it's barry here from shadow of the gm podcast just want to say i love listening to your episode about rpgs and education it was particularly of interest to me because my wife and i we home educate three of the children well i say we do she does most of the work to be honest but i have wanted to try and play some rpg sessions with the point of view that there's a lot of stuff i learned about lots of things through RPGs and it was about I was trying to think about how do you wrap it in there and I think what you convinced me is that I don't need to overthink it it's not about creating artificial scenarios where they learn things it's more about just letting them play games and exploring worlds and understanding how things work I guess through engaging with the game and making it fun with the game because that's how I learned stuff to be honest nobody set it apart to me you know learned a lot about architecture because they're the right things in the old D&D modules but other than that it was kind of just through experimenting so I want to say thanks for that session and keep up the good work so an opening call there from Andy Goodman of Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks and a fantastic call in from Barry, GM Shadow. Um, thanks, guys. Really great to hear from you. And Barry, I'm just going to pick up on your first point, really, which is, yeah, 
education it's an important thing and i'm really glad that you took the time to listen to the episode where i got chatting with that wonderful wonderful deeper centile bloke dave aldridge because although it's an all long episode it is full of useful stuff um that dave shares really and i i just felt like um yeah there's so much that i got out of role playing too so to hear you reflect all that back to me was just lovely and i just wanted to say thank you so barry keep on calling and uh, see what andy's got to say i think he only makes it halfway through the episode before we ask to call back so you know here we go okay well i didn't haven't listened through to the end yet but i have to leave the message now because i'm I'm heading off to Dundracon in about 10 minutes and I've got to get my shit together. I've got to remember to take some pencils this time. Anyway, um, I don't I fundamentally disagree with you, actually, um, but I think you've got it wrong about what type of narrative role-playing games are designed to produce because they're not there to produce filmic narratives. I, I fundamentally disagree with that. And I think... I would wholeheartedly go along with you saying that is not the purpose um, for playing role-playing games because that um, that is just not what happens at the table. However, I think they create an entirely different narrative form, one that has not actually been seen before. And that's maybe why these analogies aren't very useful at all. I think it is possible to say that role-playing games have created a new medium. Now, as someone that's done a lot of actual plays and, you know, put a lot of them out, I'm really starting to understand the narrative form, I think, um, in a limited way. I don't claim to be an expert, but it's not like a, a book. It's not like a film. It's not like a play. It is, in the words of someone far smarter than me, the, the, the only medium where um, the actors, if you like, the participants and the audience are the same people. Now, of course, once actual plays get out there and, and, are, and are watched by others, then it sort of breaks the analogy. I think it was Robin Laws, actually, who, who came up with that. I'm pretty sure it was. And um, But I think the fundamental is true that when you're at the table, that narrative form is unique, where you are both the actor and the, part, and, and the audience. And so the story that comes out is emergent. Now, you can, you can have a plot, I think, and be emergent at the same time. And um, I guess we've probably talked about that quite a lot, you and me. But um, but I think this shared, improvised, collaborative storytelling is what happens. It's just the stories it produces are not these scripted stories, um, the trite kind of crappy version of, of every fantasy film or science fiction film we've ever seen. There's something different. Um, things are happening that are, are, are unpredictable and unscripted. Um, so it's more like impro- improvisational comedy, actually, improv comedy. I always say that in Call of Cthulhu, failing a sanity check is like someone in the audience shouting out, now do this, and then you have to do it. So I'll stop there. That's enough. So there you have it. Brilliant calling from Andy. Thanks, man. Really appreciated that. And it seems we agree with each other, even though you start off by saying that I've got it wrong. It turns out you're actually reinforcing what I'm saying because I'm with you. I think role-playing games are far beyond theatre and novels and cinema. And that's what rankled me so much when I read in Dungeoneer all those years ago that you're going to be the director in the movie. It rankles. It doesn't work for me as an analogy. 
I think it's because I know that role-playing games are so much more. And I'm absolutely in agreement with you, dude, when you say it's a new medium, it's a new form of media um, where we are. As Robin Laws, I think you're right. I think it's him says, you know, we're both the audience and we're the participants. It's a fantastic thing. And so rather than just repeating you, I'm just going to leave it there. But, dude, you seem to seriously need to get back on my show and allow me to figure out how we do this because I still haven't got to the bottom of how to engage those who come for the narrative at my own table. Really need your help with that, dude. So come on, when are we going to get on the on the old mics again and have another chat? Let me know. Thanks, Andy. Game on. <laughs> ongoing journey i've been delving back to my gaming roots and exploring two classic role-playing games from this experience i've been reminded of two aspects of the fine art of being a referee both the practical and the conceptual basics and learning to play old school essentials the faithful reinstatement of the classic 1981 fantasy adventure game often referred to as bx for basic expert or more simply dungeons and dragons I've been confronted with the realisation that few modern games go as far to help the referee run a straightforward fantasy game. In this much-loved fan favourite, there is a useful bundle of simple tips that I feel should be unearthed for any referee anywhere to get their head around in learning to play. Delving into the classic 1977 edition of the Traveller science fiction role-playing game, I have similarly found many treasures designed to help the referee run a good game. In both cases, whether it be fantasy or science fiction, I've been reminded that at some point around the mid-1980s, game design took a swerve away from the kind of practical tools that early games tried to present. This is not necessarily a flaw of later games, far from it, but it does raise the question of what tools from the past might safely be unearthed and put to use in a 21st century game. Thus, today, I want to pick out a few simple points and... Blending them in with my own experience, try to tease out the basics of the referee toolkit. Let's dive in. Rescue! First of all, I'd like to touch on the basic concept of a toolkit. In common parlance, I view this as meaning a collection of useful objects which are kind of brought together and usually stored inside a convenient carry case for use in a single area of expertise. Examples would include the classic toolkits for household repairs and do-it-yourself home improvement, and also my dad's old electronics toolkit, which I remember smelled strongly of solder and had lots of loose pieces of spare wire for odd jobs in compartment inside it. Oh, I used to be fascinated with objects such as diodes and switches as a kid. For our purposes, I'd like to take the concept of a toolkit and apply it to the role of the referee. This is certainly a role in which a person would seek to develop expertise. There are certainly handy objects that can be collected together and carried from session to session when you are running a tabletop role-playing game for your friends. But additionally, I believe that we should consider carrying around some conceptual reminders to help unlock and direct our expertise at the table. A lot of the basic ideas of role-playing games are taken for granted and rarely explicitly pointed out. I think I'd like to change that for myself and share the ways in which I aim to do that for your consideration. 
Thus, this episode is simply going to summarise the physical basics of the referee's toolkit and then point towards conceptual tools that I feel lie at the heart of almost any role-playing game session I run, no matter what game system I choose or which world I run it in. I guess, if I'm being honest, this episode is a kind of aid memoir to myself. Here then are the physical tools that I've listed out in a little notebook I have and I'd like to make sure I bring to the table. Some are critical to almost every game I run, while others are merely options that I don't want to forget about. None of this is about preaching the one true way of gaming, by the way. If you've listened to the show before, then you know that I'm trying to encourage folk to play more games of imagination in a way that suits them better. And it's critical to me that people feel accepted for who they are and how they play. These are simply my tools, my preferences, my ideas. If you have some things to add or a better tool to replace one I mention, please, please do call in and let me know. Your call-ins make both my gaming and the show better. I broke my list into three sections. The minimums, the usuals and the options. And really this episode is about the minimums in more detail than the other two sections. So the minimum I will bring to a gaming session when I am the referee is as follows. Dice. Multiples of D4, D6, D8, D10, D12, D20, and a pair of D percentile dice. Unless I'm playing a game that only uses one die type, such as GURPS or Traveller, which both use D6 in droves, or, say, a World of Darkness game like Mage or Vampire, which only use a truck ton of D10s. You get the basic idea. Own the dice you need to run the game you're playing. I've never really run a diceless game beyond a single session, so dice are my number one tool of choice. And yes, I like a few odd ones around too, such as the D2 and D3, which kind of remove mental processing for those moments when I need those at the table. If I'm playing Dungeon Crawl Classics, then there are a bunch of other weird dice to grab, but you kind of get the point. Pencils and paper plus eraser. We call them rubbers in Britain, by the way. Stop laughing, Americans and a pencil sharpener. I'm hoping that the utility of these items is clear, but as with almost everything in life, I've come to understand that obvious never is. Personally, I use a clipboard with plain paper, usually reusing the other side of any single-sided printing that I've done in the past, and this pad gets used to record things like initiative order, wounds tracking, quick notes to myself, and the names of any NPCs, places, or items that I've just pulled out of the air during the session. Pencils are the best tool for writing by hand during games, by the way. I've lost count of the number of times that I took this suggestion for granted and then watched players, both adult and student, by the way, write up their character sheet in pen. Pencils allow me to dare to do something else that I can rarely stomach, but you can jot a pencil note in the margin of your rule book to record a ruling you made that needs to be remembered. Yeah, I know. Writing in books took me decades to get even close to making that suggestion. Water. This item is something I always have around me these days. Gone are the days in which I would drink alcohol at the gaming table while running the game. Alcohol, ladies and gentlemen, is a depressant. It slows the metabolism and reduces your brain function. So I need all of my brain power when I run games and thus I drink water. I do, usually at the start, drink a cup of coffee as a pleasure, but also to stave off tiredness because, well, I'm an extreme lark. I wake very early in the day. Most games are run in the evenings and therefore I get very tired, especially on a Friday night after a full day at work. So a cup of coffee and a nappuccino, those are effective tools for me as a referee. 
and then it's back to drinking water. Those are my minimums, excepting of course the rules of the game in play on hand. Look, although I try to refrain from at-table lookups in the rule books, I am afraid I am getting older. Some games are complex and require a kind of large cognitive load from the referee. Having the rules on standby is probably a safety net for me, but I always have them nearby. And so there, I said it. I am not afraid to check a rule at the table if I need to. It's important to me that the gameplay is consistent. Thus, my minimum are dice, pencil, paper, rubber, sharpener, clipboard and rule book. But what are my conceptual basic tools? When it comes to the referee's toolkit on a basic level, I recommend three useful conceptual frameworks for most role-playing sessions. These are what I usually term game structures, procedural elements that help to answer the two most important questions you need to address during any role-playing session. Question one, what do the characters do? Question two, how do the players do it? The three basic tools are the combat system, the location search, and the wilderness exploration. Most RPGs are good at providing you with a workable combat system, so I'll not describe this here. That said, it's worth pointing out that since about 1983, it seems that almost every published role-playing game stopped giving referees the other two game structures in explicit detail. In role-playing game circles, it's simply assumed that you know about these game structures. Weirdly, some modern GMs even go so far as to attack these structures as being surplus to requirements or, in the words of Brian Jameson in his book Game Mastering, as being, quote, the technology of the 1970s, unquote, which is no longer appropriate in a more enlightened age of collaborative storytelling. Don't get me wrong, I find Jameson's book to be broadly excellent, but that statement raises my hackles every time I reread his book. Tool one, the combat system. Right, here we go. The combat game is the most basic game structure in role-playing games that the referee directly manages. Well, okay, maybe the character creation system in some games is also a game structure. Traveller, I'm looking at you. But most of the time, it's simply an occasionally used process to build characters for use in other game structures. It's not usually a game in and of itself although there are exceptions, such as Traveller. The combat system, the game of violent interaction between characters and non-player characters, this is the most basic game structure. I didn't say it was necessarily the simplest structure, however. It's just that getting into combat is one of the most ubiquitous game structures in role-playing games. It usually takes up around one-third to one-half or more of most RPG core rulebooks. As a referee, it'll come up the most in at-the-table sessions, and therefore, I feel like you need to know how to run combat. But let's test the game structure with the key questions. One, what do the characters do? The characters are trying to stay alive, and they can either opt to disengage, or they can engage the enemy in melee or ranged combat. How do the players do it? There is usually a clear process, often fought in 1, 6, 10, or 15 second rounds. Sometimes rounds are a minute. It depends on the game system. Players declare their character's movement status and they indicate an attack form plus a target. In some games, players have other options on their character sheet. Of course, 
If the players opt for other actions outside of the core combat system, it's usually pretty trivial for the referee to adjudicate those decisions, but usually within the framework of combat rounds or whatever initiative order or lack thereof is in use in the particular game you're running. I'm generalising for brevity here. Hopefully you can see that combat is the most basic game at the table. It can be played on its own, by the way, without ever going anywhere near another game structure, but that's pretty unusual in anything other than simply learning to fight battles. Most of the time, the referee is going to deploy at least one of the other two game structures in a typical role-playing session. Tool 2. The Location Search. This is also known as the Dungeon Crawl, and this game structure came into being early in the design of what became Dungeons & Dragons. In short, you enter a single physical location with the intention of searching for something. Sometimes a search is simply to establish what's in there, an exploration for the sake of exploration, perhaps to make a map for an NPC patron, but usually it's a search for treasure or information, artefacts or people. What do the characters do? The characters are trying to find the thing they're searching for. They will be moving through the location and discovering what's inside. How do the players do it? They enter an area within the location and they might interact with the descriptions given by the referee. But sometimes they'll be asked by the referee to test the abilities of their characters during that interaction. Once an area has been searched, the players pick from the available exits and move to a new area. That's what's called the default action. If you don't know what else to do, well, pick a direction. And some, fundamentally, this structure is played, it's repeated, until the players decide to leave the location they're in. While a lot of gamers denigrate the dungeon crawl, it's the second most used game structure. It doesn't matter what game. I mean, even a mystery-based game like Call of Cthulhu will occasionally deploy the location search game at the table. Entering a cultic temple to rescue a captured friend? Well, you'll likely enjoy a good location search game. This game structure transcends genre, it transcends rule system and worlds. It's tool number two in my referee's toolkit. Oh, and by the way, you don't need a fully fleshed out map to run a location search game. A point crawl uses this same structure, and so does Mythic's location crafter list approach. You can also loosen it up and give the players a map, you know, allowing them to flip from area to area in their search. That's a trick that speeds up the search and downplays the tension of the actual exploration of the space. But whatever. It's all about those two questions. What do the characters do and how do the players do it? In a location search, they are searching for something and they poke around the location, picking direction until they find it. Tool 3. The Wilderness Exploration. Also known as a hex crawl or map crawl, this looks similar in kind to the location search, but it's focused on an area of outdoor terrain and usually utilising a map of some kind. And it can be the archetypal hex map of early D&D, or a nice modern Google map of an area, or even a geodesic map of a planet in an SF game. The difference between a location search and a wilderness exploration is the answer to those two core questions. What do the characters do? As the Alexandrian points out, the default goal is exploration. This notably lacks a strong, specific motivator. Quote, Thus, over the years, various goals have been grafted onto the hex crawl structure to provide a strong motivation for the exploration. End quote. Examples include getting from A to B on an unfamiliar world, mapping the wild for a patron, or perhaps looking for a hidden location you're going to search when you get there. How do the players do it? Just like a location search, the default action of a wilderness exploration is to pick a direction and go. Again, a lot of gamers denigrate the hex crawl. 
An awful lot of referees simply ignore it as a way of playing. Instead, they kind of substitute the fast travel concept from computer games and effectively teleport the characters to the location of the next, quote, interesting scene, unquote. I feel this is a valid choice in many situations, but I also feel that it robs the players of a unique experience when the goal of the game you're playing is to explore a large outdoor environment. Anyway, taken together, these basic game structures form this referee's basic toolkit for running sessions of Dungeons & Dragons, Traveller and similar games. From here, we're able to delve into the tools I would usually use and those which I would optionally use from my referee's toolkit. But as we're clearly running out of time, I'll just allude to those briefly in list form. And before I do that, I've got another call in from Barry. Let's hear what he had to say. Hi, Shay. Barry here again from Shadow of the GM podcast. This time we're going to talk about storytelling in games from your last episode that I heard. Um, first of all, heresy. How dare you say it's not a collaborative world building? <laughs> so I keep a straight face when I say those things. Um, I do wonder, cynical Barry in my brain always says, do you think we tell people, and I wonder if Anchorites think the same, that it's a collaborative world building storytelling thing? Because to say to other adults that we're a bunch of adults and we sit around a table playing games like we used to do at children, it's a little bit uncomfortable and we feel we might be judged for that. And so do try and make it sound a bit more highbrow about seeing the storytelling aspects of it. I mean, those things are in there and I think you did touch a lot on those. But a little cynical part of me says, do we try and say, oh no, it's, it's not just a game. We're not just playing Monopoly or whatever. You know, there's more it than that um, which I guess kind of leads me to another point about you know I was thinking a bit about Monopoly so like for example at Christmas time everyone tends to sit around and we play board games and we have fun and we tell stories afterwards about the stuff that happened and it's weird that you know no one thinks that's a bad thing we don't try and justify well we were actually doing a collaborative storytelling experiment about monopolizing on property and building hotels you know we don't say that we just talk about what we did um, and it's one of those weird things that we kind of almost I wonder if we do feel we have to justify ourselves around RPGs but actually fact that storytelling like you said about real life you bring that out through your games and we talk about other board games just standard ones you know Trivial Pursuit Monopoly those things like that you know based around the experiences we had and you know the way people reacted and the fun things that happened and it's a bit like you know that's the same I guess from RPGs I know there's more of an element to it because of the actual role playing you're more in another character you're exploring a lot more in depth world but I feel that kind of stuff translates through and it's about you know that gaming experience it isn't just about rolling dice etc and about the fact it's an RPG and when I think about this I was remembered reminded I should say of um, an old Red Dwarf comedy series episode where I'll remember one of the characters was regaling people of his stories of risk and talking about rolling the dice and the way the dice kind of flew so that he was able to take you know Africa etc and all the rest and it's that kind of thing about you know that was meant to be really tongue-in-cheek but as somebody who used to play a lot of risk back in the day it was quite I loved it um, I kind of that's kind of the, the way you were because you talk about it with your friends and it's about that shared experience with a bunch of friends around a table and the gaming and those daft situations and so again like I said that but nobody has to justify it being a game it's a game at the end of the day and you had fun playing a game um, I'm not really sure there's much point to this ramble but it was to go on a bit about that and you know it's it's the same when you do RPGs I mean I don't think that we play role playing games and say oh let's sit down and let's tell a story and afterwards you don't say oh that was a really good story people tend to say that was a good session that was a good game and we talk about it as if it's a game Barry excellent call in and yes in short I agree with you I don't know why we do it to ourselves can we just not own that these are games and enjoy them as games? Thanks for calling in, man. Game on. Right, then, I'm conscious of time, but I'm going to plough on. So, usually and optionally. 
Usually, I use physical game structure process summaries. <laughs> what I mean is stuff like a two-page spread that you'd find in something like Old School Essentials Core cool Rules book on pages 28 and 29 for Dungeon Adventuring and pages 30 and 31 for Wilderness Adventuring. By the way, while I'm talking about OSE, I'd absolutely recommend referees steal the less used but just as clear game structures for encounters, evasion and pursuits, and waterborne adventures. They're all useful. Usually, I use a GM screen with reference materials for the combat system and other bits from the game I'm running. Usually, I create a master rumours and clues list. This is a full list of all the clues, also known as rumours, that you have available, plus notes on which of those clues are live in your game. Clues given to players are live. You need to know which characters have received each clue, or at least which game group has received each clue, if you're running a more traditional campaign, not the kind of open table I tend to end up doing. Usually, I create a list of names for on-the-fly NPCs, um, also for places and organisations. The NPCs list is a pretty damn useful one, but I often forget about it. Place names and organisation names are great to have on hand as well. I basically cross them off when you use them. Um, I note on my scrap paper in pencil what they're used for, and I update the notes after the game. Optionally, I bring maps to the gaming session. Commonly, these include location maps or point crawl diagrams i also use wilderness maps and i use star maps in sf games having versions for the players to see is very much a further option it depends on the game i'm running optionally i use miniatures and tokens plus battle maps i use dry white pens a lot but i really honestly prefer actual terrain pieces and sections of dungeon and the like these provide a strong tactile element to play with which i really enjoy and they're also useful in combat scenes to help keep track of character positions and make sure everything's clear and you know they really open up a skirmish style tactical combat option as well being an ex-war gamer all of this really appeals to me your tastes are likely to be different and so your mileage will vary the downsides are slower combat scenes and the need for space at the table and also space for storage and they can also be expensive to collect both in terms of money but also in terms of time i really do need to get back to investing time in this for my table but remember it's optional. Finally, I opt for a game world Bible. I'm air quoting there. I use that word Bible after a lot of agonizing because of the danger of trivializing actual holy books. But what I mean is Bible in the more literal sense, a collection of texts that are considered key and useful to you in your activities as a referee. Only you can know what that means for your game. I will, before I finish, however, read a lovely passage I found this week in the classic traveller book Zero, An Introduction to Traveller. This is, by the way, an excellent read for anyone who's interested in role-playing games because it contains loads of gems. The problem, of course, is that it's a little obscure, even within the RPG community. But anyway, here's a quotation. Quote, It's best to start out small as a referee, especially if you are also new to Traveller. Don't try to run something of breathtaking scope the first time out. The record-keeping alone will overwhelm you and your players will rapidly lose interest. There are several approaches to the first few games. Which one you choose depends on the experience you and your players have had. End quote. Rescue! Right, and that's pretty much the lot. So just start small, keep it simple. Use the basic tools. Dice, pencil, paper, combat scenes, location searches, and wilderness exploration. Later, you can expand into running mystery games and social interactions as part of your game structure repertoire. In time, 
you'll find the toolkit gets to be pretty varied. But we all have to start somewhere, right? Massive thanks to Andy and Barry for their call-ins today. Thank you. Keep them coming, folks. Thank you to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through their generosity on Patreon. This money helps to fund the various elements like the music produced by TJ Drennan and the upkeep of my blog at roleplayrescue.com. Just thank you, all of you. Actually, what's even more valuable is your encouragement. Finally, thank you to you, the listener, for taking a little time out of your day to listen. I hope that I've fulfilled my core mission of encouraging you to regularly play imaginative games and to play them in a way that suits you better. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next time. Game on.